Welcome to Product Decoded, a podcast where we share advice and best practices on how to build and scale great products from the world's top product experts. This podcast is produced by Spiro Ventures and Product Leader Summit. Spiro Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm that is helping entrepreneurs build a future that belongs to everyone. Product Leader Summit's mission is to create a community for product leaders and founders to learn from one another. On today's episode of Product Decoded, our guest is Chris Abad, VP of Product and Design at User Testing, interviewed by me, your Product Decoded co-host, Dan Olson. I'm a product consultant and author of the Lean Product Playbook. Thanks so much for listening. Now let's get started. Um, I thought we could start out, you know, everyone has their own kind of unique tale of how they got into product management. Chris, I thought maybe you could, we could start out by you telling us how you got into product management. Sure. Um, oh boy. So let's see. Um, early in my career, I had a couple startups. Uh, first one was out of college. It was bootstrapped. Uh, after that, uh, we met up with some seasoned entrepreneurs and uh, I had a startup that was uh, venture backed. We eventually sold that company, um, and so I was in this position in my life where uh, I had always worn all the hats and worked in small teams, and I did everything, product design, development, biz dev, hiring, sales, um, the whole gamut. And moving into this large organization uh, is <laughs> sort of a silly way to fall into product, but I was asked, you know, so what's your title? Like, bigger company, we've got titles here, and uh, I wasn't sure, so I had to ask one of my investors, and I said, well, like, what kind of kind of person am I? Like, where do I go? Do I go this way? Do I go this way? Uh, and he said, you know, I think you're, I think you're more of a product guy. Um, and that was sort of it. Like that kind of kicked it off and I was like, all right, product, I got it. Um, and then fast forward, uh, maybe a year or two later, uh, and it was actually, it was actually the same guy. He asked me to come back. He had a startup and asked me to lead, uh, his, his product organization. And uh, I knew he was a product guy, but specifically product management was a little bit different. And so I, I, I joined and he said, okay, you know, I need you to build a, a product team. And he, uh, I think gave me like three hires or something like that. And he said, you should go hire product managers. I'm like, all right, product managers, got it. Um, later that evening, I had to go home and Google product manager <laughs> and figure out what a product manager was. I don't think I quite figured it out because my first three hires were actually designers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realized later that uh, I hired designers because I knew that they thought the way that I thought about building product. Um, But they really hated it when I made them do all the other stuff that product managers have to do. Uh, So we rewound that and I later ended up hiring people who were uh, a little bit more suited to that role. But that was was sort of my crash course into product management, completely um, sort of accidental. That's That's awesome. That's great. Cool. And I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with user testing. um, But for those that aren't, maybe you could just give a quick description of user testing and tell us about uh, your role there. Sure. Uh, So user testing, we're a platform that provides fast fast access to human insights. So uh, you make decisions about lots of things in your business all the time, whether it's about product, whether it's about messaging, whether it's about your brand, um, whether it's about business strategy. And uh, we believe and we've learned that the more that you can connect with your market and your users and bring those insights into those decisions, the, the, the more informed and the better those decisions are going to be. So we build a platform that makes doing that really fast and easy. Um, a lot of times people don't do it because it's complicated, it's hard, it's expensive. So you kind of go off of gut uh, and we, we try to eliminate that. 
so my role at user testing, uh, I'm in the product organization, pretty much everything under product that's not engineering. So I have a team of product managers, uh, designers, uh, user researchers, and also data scientists. Sounds great. Cool. And you mentioned that you have a strong background in design. And I know one of the things, many things that you and I uh, have in common is that we think it's valuable for PMs to be knowledgeable about UX design. Can you share your thoughts on, on that with us? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's actually, I think, a few different ways I think about how uh, design is important for uh, product people. And most of the time when I say design, uh, what I'm talking about is not necessarily UI design, but sort of broader design. Like how do we, how do we make things and how do we decide what, they're, what they do? Um, and how do we be intentional about that process? Um, so one of the ways that I think design is particularly important for product people is um, uh, this idea of uh, product design, which is um, you know, who, am I, who am I building this for? What's their problem? And what's the thing that's actually gonna satisfy that? Uh, in uh, my perspective, that's really a designer's way of, of thinking about solving problems. Uh, and that's probably one of the most important parts about being a product manager is being able to think that way. So a lot of times over, over the course of my career, when I say I bring design to product, it's not so much that um, it's this uh, um, uh, focus on beautiful things, which is a lot of, a lot of times how mm -hmm. people think about it. That's important. Um, but it's really about how you think about solving problems. And that's what I try to convey to other product people. And what I look for is, do you think that way? Do you sort of bring that um, design thinking approach to building products and solving problems? Um, that's that's probably, I would say, one of the most important ways. I try to push like push product people towards being, uh, quote unquote, like designers. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important is you have to be able to empathize with uh, designers, specifically people in that role. Um, you know, I think in our industry, there's been a lot of focus over the last you know, decade plus for product managers who can empathize with engineers because we've seen how important it is for product people um, to be able to work closely with engineers to actually get product built. Uh, one of the things that I came across uh, years ago that I've has been a huge influence in how I think about product is um, this idea of uh, dual track that you know Marty Kagan has talked about in his book. It's been amazing, and part of that idea is that um, a product manager's role is primarily in discovery, not delivery. And your partner in uh, discovery is not always engineering. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll have your tech lead there with you, but really your closest partner is oftentimes the designer. And so what I look for is, do product people understand how to work with designers? Can they empathize with the designer? And can they understand where they're coming from so they can be good partners uh, in that discovery process? No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and for those that aren't familiar with dual track, there's like the delivery, the standard agile delivery track, and then the track that feeds that is a discovery or and definition kind of track so that you're feeding in the delivery track. Right. Um, and I think it's a great point about uh, PMs not only being able to work with engineers, but designers. So for PMs that are interested in learning more about design and getting into it, what advice would you have for them? So one one thing I think I see uh, PMs do when they say, I want to I want to learn more about design is they go and they take like UI design courses, which is which is great in the sense that it, it's helpful to just sort of know the process and how to go through things. And sometimes in smaller companies, when you're a PM wearing multiple hats, you do have to make design decisions. You have to do wireframes, you have to make a call on interaction design and how things work. Um, but going back to what I said earlier, I don't, I don't think that's the, uh, that's not where I would start. Uh, and 
if we think about design as a way of thinking, then I would look at uh, other areas of design um, uh, and, and some frameworks like design thinking, I think is a, is a really great way to apply design tools to solving business problems, solving problems other than UI design. Um, I think uh, a lot of the more popular ways of thinking and frameworks that are heavily research-led um, are really important. And I like that's what I think of when I think of PMs learning design. So uh, customer development, lean startup, um, uh, things like that that are heavily research-led, like that's all uh, designers' tools bringing those into the product world. So I, I'd sort of push design, uh, product people that way to learn about design, which is not always how people think about design, but that's sort of my definition of design. No, it makes sense. And I, you know, I, I interview PMs all the time and I'll say, what tools do you use? And sometimes I'll be like, oh, you know, I, I learned how to do sketch. Mm-hmm. And they're very focused on like doing designs in sketch. And I think one thing to be more explicit, like we're talking about problem space versus solution space. You're saying it makes more sense for them to learn how to get better at the problem space discovery aspects of it versus the more actual creating design aspects. One, one way, so I, I spent some time in the, um, on the design team at Salesforce, and we had this model that we would talk about. It's uh, completely oversimplified uh, for, for people that really get in the weeds on this stuff, but we sort of had three tiers of design. And at the bottom tier, we would just call that product design, where you're answering questions like, who is this for? Why do they need it? What value do they get out of it? The second level we would call UX design, which would answer questions like, how does it work? How do people get through this? How do they accomplish the task? Mm-hmm. And then on the third layer, you would have visual design. And a lot of times the questions you're answering there is what is the emotional reaction that people are getting out of this and um, how does it make them feel? Uh, And so that's sort of like my uh, worldview of what I would consider design. And so when when I push product people towards design, I'm really pushing them at that bottom layer. and um, answering those sort of questions and what tools do you need to think about how do I empathize with my user, how do I understand their problems, and how do I um, decide what sort of solution is going to solve those problems, which uh, has very little to do with Sketch. <laughs> right, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I know another question I'll ask people is like, well, have you ever like moderated a customer interview? And mo- many PMs have, but some, they're like, no, a user researcher does it. or so. Like, they're almost afraid, like, I can't do that, like, um, but I encourage them, like, why, you know, I think that part of being good at discovery mm-hmm. is doing that. Totally. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I view you as someone who makes it a point to stay on top of the latest product management concepts and techniques. And so I thought it'd be great just to hear, like, what are some of the modern best practices for product management that you're excited about or care about the most these days? Um, well, you know, if, if I think about the all the time that I've spent sort of uh, thinking about product process and best practices and looking at the industry and what are other people doing that I can learn from, it all has really come back to research. Uh, And it's all about how can you understand and connect with customers and your end users uh, and pull those insights back into your decision making. So, and I think that's still a trend that's continuing. It, uh, It manifests itself in a whole bunch of different flavors over the years, but at its core, like that is the number one lever that I think product people are getting is when they do that, they make better decisions and make better products. Um, so that's not necessarily a new trend. There's mm-hmm. certainly new flavors mm-hmm. of what that looks like, but that's something that I continue to be excited about and continue um, to experiment with. Right now at user testing, uh, we're going through a lot of changes in our organization. We're growing, we're maturing, we're introducing uh, different roles and different people involved in making products. So we're having to think a lot right now about our process and how we work and how do we 
how do we pull those best practices together in a way that's cohesive that everyone can understand and so so that we are uh, consistent across our organization. Uh, we when I first joined a little over a year ago, you know we had uh, I think five product teams and it was most of our process was really oriented around um, how can engineers be most effective and how can product managers uh, participate and sort of guide uh, that process. But since then, uh, I think we probably have somewhere around 12 teams right now. Uh, we've introduced uh, design in a, in a very big way to that process. We've introduced um, data science in a much more integrated way. We've introduced user research in a more integrated way and product marketing. So it's, it's a much more um, uh, kind of diverse and complex ecosystem now. So our process needs to change and adapt. Uh, some of the things that we've really started to look at that are interesting are, um, uh, are things like jobs to be done, uh, which is not necessarily a, a brand new thing. I think it's really starting to pick up and become more popular in, in product circles. But we're really, really looking at uh, jobs to be done, uh, frameworks and techniques to better understand the problem space and to sort of frame the opportunities and figure out what our strategy is to create a solution that uh, people are going to love and is going to win in the market. Uh, we've, uh, as we get into trying to solve for those opportunities, uh, we've been really excited by uh, techniques like assumption mapping, which is something that David Bland talks a lot about. And so we've really liked some of the approaches that he's taken to um, mapping those assumptions and, and running experiments on those. Uh, there's, there was a really interesting article we saw recently that we've paired with this technique. It was about um, all the controversy around MVPs and sort of a loaded term. And, um, the point of the article was uh, was that we should kill the term of MVP. We should consider that really what we're doing, they call them rats, uh, riskiest assumption tests. And that was a really interesting um, lens to put on that for us. So we've kind of married those two together. And that's been um, really helpful uh, for our team. Also, uh, design sprints, which you know I've, I've been experimenting with and running design sprints with teams for probably the last four or five years. Uh, they just came out with a with a book recently that really gets into a whole lot of detail on how to do that process. And so sharing that level of detail with our teams has really helped a much more diverse group of people engage in a more meaningful way. And also it's made it really easy for a broader group of people to lead and facilitate design sprints. So we've been able to use that more as part of our process as we come up with good solutions. Uh, and then um, the, the last one I might, uh, I might call out is... Uh, they call it the burn down framework. And this was uh, from David Cancel, who used to lead product at HubSpot, and now he has a startup uh, at Drift. And they've talked a lot recently about their process, and they, they call it the burn down framework. And we've, um, we've pulled pieces out of that that's been really helpful to show us how do we transition from all of this like really intense and sometimes uh, nebulous discovery phase and transition into our delivery phase where, you know, the engineering team can can build the products in, a, in an efficient way and follow, um, you know, agile best practices. So those are those are some of the most uh, recent techniques that we've kind of seen out there. And we've pulled what's worked for us into our own process and tried to pull those together. That's great. Yeah, just a couple of pointers for listeners. So the Sprint book by Jake Knapp and his co-authors from Google Ventures Design Partners, basically. Um, and then on the jobs to be done, you know, I discovered that a long time ago through Tony Ulrich's book, What mm -hmm. Customers Want, which is a great book. And he recently wrote uh, Jobs to Be Done book uh, earlier this year um, where he talks about it. And the a key thing in there is the whole importance versus satisfaction framework as far as identifying opportunities, which I also kind of mentioned in my book. I, I'm a big fan of that uh, to, to score things. So 
Cool. And, um, you know, some product teams, uh, I know this is kind of, you know, your team structure is unique. You have a lot of different functions reporting into you. And some teams are basically better and have better muscles at doing qualitative research. And other organizations are much more quantitative in what they're comfortable with and good at. Um, and I like to call that Oprah versus Spock, where Oprah is the qualitative who's interviewing people one-on-one -on -one, and Spock is all about logic and analytics and numbers. And you've done something really interesting on your team by actually combining your qualitative research people and your quantitative analysis persons. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So um, lots of uh, more mature companies have both UX research groups and data science groups. Uh, the challenge is they're usually on opposite ends um, uh, organizationally. They usually don't work together. They usually don't talk to each other. One of the biggest challenges, I think, just in my own experiences, um, is they aren't, it's really difficult to bridge those two personalities. I mean, if you put a data scientist and, and a UX researcher in a room, um, sometimes, you know, that you really have to sort of translate between the two. There just isn't a lot of uh, opportunity for collaboration there in most organizations. Uh, so one thing that we try to try to do is we're trying to change that. And this was sort of an um, organizational experiment that we started at the beginning of the year. Uh, user testing for a very long time, obviously, has had a, a very strong muscle with UX research. We have a very large team of researchers. Uh, we do a lot of research on behalf of our customers. At the beginning of the year, as we've evolved our process and thought about how do we bring research more deeply into our own product process, we've really started to build out our own research team within product. Uh, at the same time, we also wanted to build up our our uh, data science function. So, you know, we, we thought, well, what if we just bring these two together and have them work together? And the idea is that to answer questions um, based on data, you really need the full perspective. You really need to see the whole picture. And the fear was um, any one of those perspectives, whether you're looking at it from a qualitative perspective uh, or looking at it from a purely data-based perspective, you're missing something. So if you're familiar with the, the story about the blind men, um, and the elephant, you know, and they, they've never seen an elephant and they, uh, they try to describe it. One goes up and, um, you know, t maybe touches the ear and says, oh, wait, elephants are like fans. And another touches the, uh, the tail and says, oh, elephants are like snakes. Uh, you, you sort of get the picture. Um, it's not that any one of them are wrong, but not a single one of them has the, the full holistic picture and can accurately describe what's going on. So that was kind of the idea of bringing this team together. Uh, so at the beginning of the year, uh, we call this our, our product insights team. And at the beginning of the year, we brought this team together. It started with uh, one researcher and one uh, data scientist. And uh, since then, we've we've grown the team. But in the beginning, uh, we really gave them three goals as sort of their team charter. Uh, the first one was uh, help us understand whether or not we are solving problems worth solving. And in that way, this group had a lot of influence in helping us guide our strategy and how do we make decisions on the opportunities to pursue and, and the products to build. Uh, the, the other part of their charter was help us determine whether or not the things that we build are actually having the impact that we think they're having. In, in product, most, to, most of the time what you do, you're, you're really just taking guesses. You, there's a problem, you think you have a way to solve it, you put it out there in the world and fingers crossed and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but to get better at that, you really need to have a retrospective process. And so this team is great at really giving us an objective perspective on uh, was our hypothesis right? Did we have the intended impact? And if not, what happened? What can we do next? Uh, so in that way, they sort of keep us honest about how good we are at our guesses and how do we get better at those. Uh, and then the third thing 
the third goal that they were given is how do we make uh, this idea of getting product insights and bringing that into our process, how do we make that self-service? Uh, and this is really about how do we scale these efforts because uh, we started with a very small team. It was one researcher, one data scientist, compared to just to give you um, a reference point, we had about 50 engineers at the time. Uh, and we're just never going to be able to hire enough researchers and data scientists fast enough to be able to bring that process to everyone in the way that we wanted to. So we needed to take a different approach. So part of the team's goal is how do we make this self-service for everyone? So that team is more about enabling this process rather than having to do the process all the time. Um, so that that's, uh, did I answer yeah, answer your question? Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking that uh, maybe you could share an example of how they work together on a project. Yeah, so um, let's see. So we, we actually have uh, one really good example that they went through recently. And, uh, you know, going into this, the idea was not so much that bringing these two perspectives together was important, but it was in the way in which we did it. Because uh, lots of companies, they'll, you know, you'll have someone who's responsible for making that decision. And, you know, people who are good at that role, they'll bring together multiple perspectives. They'll look at the data, they'll look at the qualitative feedback, they'll look at what's going on in the business, um, and they'll make a make an educated decision based on all these, these angles. Um, but our idea was a little bit different, and the idea was we actually needed a really um, close back and forth as you uncover the data, um, and in that way, you would you would arrive at a at a different conclusion. So, uh, you know, we, we saw a really interesting example of this recently. Uh, so, in our product, you know, uh, people go in and they they create studies. They want to go answer a question. They create a research study, uh, and then they get feedback and sort of distill that into some sort of insight. And uh, uh, Marika, who's our our head of UX research, uh, she she had this um, behavior that she's known about for for a while, and she knew that our users would go in and they would actually create copies of previous studies that they had done. Um, but just based on the, the anecdotal um, evidence that she'd heard, we sort of thought it wasn't happening very frequently. And we also thought that this was just sort of, um, it was an interesting workaround that people were doing, people who were sort of like power users of the product, um, but not really core to how we thought about designing our product. Um, but she, she, had, she had mentioned it. And actually, so the way that we had set up this group is, especially in the beginning, we, we literally forced them to sort of pair and everything that they did, they had to do together. If they had a question they wanted to answer, both people had to be there and they had to try to answer it together, even if one person was sort of silent and, and bored the entire time, um, just to see if we would find new opportunities to bring in a new perspective along the way. So instead so, of paired programming, it's paired research. Exactly. Paired insights, I like it. Paired insights yeah, with yeah. both qualitative and, and quantitative awesome. in the room. Um, so, so we got to the scenario where we're kind of, we came across this and, and this question came up and um, we said, so we've seen this behavior. We, we think it's not very common. We think it's just sort of an anomaly. Um, and, and actually Doug, who's, who's our first data scientist on the team, um, you know, because he was there and he heard it, he went and looked at the data and what, we act, what the data actually showed us is 80% uh, of our studies were actually being copied. Far more than just you know it's a it's an edge case. It's actually happening more often than not. Not only that, but what the data showed them is that eighty percent of those studies were then being created, copied again, um, and that that was a that was a really interesting behavior and pattern that that we hadn't thought about before. Um, so we thought about well, what does that mean? Like why why is the data showing us that, and how can we explain that um, based on what we're hearing from customers? 
And having heard that, you know, Marika was able to think about that and say, you know, in, in all the customer interviews that I've done, uh, and I've kind of heard people talk about their workflows, she, she thought about an instance where someone had, had used the words chain and they said, you know, oh, I create my chains of studies. And, and there was just sort of this connection between what Doug had described in the data and what she had heard in that interview and sort of recalled it. Um, and we thought that was interesting. Oh, well, maybe there's something there. We, this idea of chains, that kind of sounds like what you're describing where people are kind of copying things over and over again. Um, so that sort of triggered something in Doug's head. He said, you know, I think I can do something with that. You know, give me a couple days and, and let me get back to you. And he actually went back into our usage data and created, um, created a visualization of this chaining, you know, quote unquote chaining behavior. Um, and it was, it was really cool. We actually have this report now where we can literally see this chaining behavior by user and by account, where you can kind of see these strands of how people copy studies over and over again. It, it sort of looks like uh, molecules, like if you were to look at molecules under a microscope, it looks really similar to that. And now what we can start to see is the shape of this chaining behavior and the length and the clustering. Uh, and what we realized is, you know, we, we had this idea originally that the reason why people were copying these studies is that they were creating templates for themselves. Um, I created a study once, I make a lot of studies like this, so here's my template and then I'm just gonna use this as a starting point for all my other studies. When we were able to visualize the chaining behavior, it didn't look like that at all because if that were true, you'd sort of, it, it kind of looked like a hub and spoke, you'd have one at the hub and then you have all these spokes every time you would, you would duplicate this and maybe you would only have one link off off the hub each time. And what we actually saw was cluster, little mini hubs and spokes clustered together. Uh, and what we realized is we'd also heard through a lot of interviews, people talking about projects and thinking about like the way that they think about their world is not in terms of individual studies, but projects. And you know, tying all this together, what we realized is this chaining visualization that we were looking at actually represented how people thought about projects um, when they do research. And so, you know, this, that was a really interesting insight for us and gave us something concrete that we could tie this, you know, project behavior to, because we don't actually have this concept of projects in our product right now. Uh, but this gave us a really concrete way to tie this concept to something that was already happening, um, kind of an emergent behavior in our product. Not only that, but we could actually start to quantify that. We could find um, how often people were working in this, Kind of project-based way and we found it's actually almost everyone was doing it and we could also see the size of projects so we know that you know on average projects are anywhere from three to five studies um, on average and so now what we're doing is we've actually kicked off a very large project around redesigning the whole workflow around how people start this whole process and how people create studies and at the core of that is this idea of creating projects and you know we know what they look like we know the size of them so we can work that into um, how we design the experience. That sounds great. Basically like folders for the surveys. You can organize them. Yeah. That sounds great. That's a great example. That's cool. Yeah, and I, um, uh, Marika's awesome. So Marika McCloskey, she actually gave a talk at my meetup, the Lean Product Meetup, that's recorded online. I highly recommend it for people to check out. Uh, Meetup.com slash lean-product. Um, she gave an awesome talk. And uh, and so did Tony Olwick actually when his book came out earlier this spring. So for people that are interested, you can check out the videos there. So. Cool. Well, um, so what kind of thing, you know, we have a lot of product leaders in our, um, in our listener base. Um, what kind of things tend to keep you up at night? Oh, boy. Uh, lots of things keep me up at night these days. Uh, so it's really interesting. Um, years ago, you know, I'd come across 
uh, an article that Marty Kagan had wrote. And I would say at the time, he's one of the few people that I was coming across that was really writing about product leadership separately from product management. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he described it in a really simple way that has stuck with me, which is product leadership really focuses on three things, product, process, and people. Um, and, you know, as my my career has evolved and as my role has shifted, gone from company to company and teams of teams of different shapes and sizes, that's always hold true. And if I think about the things that keep me up at night, they tend to fall into those buckets as people, product, and process. Um, some of the main things that I think are really keeping me up at night these days are, you know, I'd mentioned earlier that our organization is going through a lot of changes right now. And and how do we how do we morph and how do we scale and how do we structure ourselves in the right way. So I think a lot about organizational design these days. Um, how do we design teams, cross-functional teams, and teams that involve different roles and functions um, in a way that helps us be efficient? Uh, definitely have been thinking a whole lot about process design lately. And you know, we have all these great theories and all these modern techniques, but how do you adapt those in a way that's gonna work specifically for your organization and how do you pull these together into something cohesive? Uh, which has always been a challenge for me. You, you know, you, you, the the latest article, or the latest book comes out, and it's great, and you love it, and it's it sounds perfect when you read it. But then you go and try to apply it, and you, you've you've you're sort of slotting it into your process, and you don't know how everything connects. Um, so we've we've definitely thought a lot about that lately. Um, and then on the product side, you know, we think a lot about like how do we how do we continue to grow the business? User testing has been around for a decade. Um, you know, we've we've done an amazing job securing a, a leadership position in our category, uh, but you know, research right now is is such an exciting space. It's no longer about just doing usability testing. It's no longer about just researchers doing this. You know, some of the like books and articles I mentioned earlier are all about bringing research and connecting with people and gaining human insights to inform every type of decision. Um, so that is a, a really interesting landscape for us, but. Then the question as a, as a product leader is how do we create products for this new environment? Because the product that we had or the, the right solution for the market situation, you know, five, eight years ago is not necessarily the perfect solution for today. So we need to grow and evolve and create new products and mold the products that we have. And that's not easy. Um, so those are, those are a lot of the things that keep me up. Yeah, it makes sense. And you mentioned process. I know a lot of times, like you said, you'll read some new tips or advice or process and you'll run into challenges trying to operationalize it. And what I've found a lot with a lot of the companies I work with is the product leader is very clear on the process. And they try to teach it to their team and get their team to adopt it. And that doesn't always go super successful. Do you have any tips for product leaders that are trying to get their team to embrace a new process? Uh, absolutely. So interestingly enough, we've, we've sort of been neck deep in this over the last few months. And, you know, when I first came in, I was I was coming into you know fairly mature team that already had its process down um, and they already had a particular way of working. Of course, I had my own way that I like to work, and those two matched in some ways, but not perfectly. And you know I didn't want to come in and say, okay, now we're going to do things this way. So early on, uh, what I did was I started by one um, just talking about some of the principles that were important to me. And trying to leave it to the team to figure out how to either incorporate those principles or double down on the principles they were already applying into their own process to try to start to bring these together. But other than that, uh, my number one priority was just to observe, just to kind of watch and under first understand how the team was working. Because the thing about process is there's no one size fits all. 
um, even though I have my preferred way of working, every I have to restart that process every time I join a new team because you sort of have to mold it to how the team works, the strengths of that team, the sort of product that you're working on. So a lot of my early time at user testing was really just observing. Um, and then from there, what we started to do is I started to kind of uh, pepper the team with ideas. Hey, you know, I think in this particular case, I, I've tried this in the past and this might work and this might work. And so you would get these little pockets where different teams were kind of piloting and trying new things. We kind of pushed them to not adopt an entire process, but try certain techniques here and there where it felt relevant and where it might work. Um, but I still really left it up to them. If, if I gave them an idea and they decided that it didn't really apply, that was totally fine. Some people, for some people it worked, for some people it didn't. Um, and so we did that for a few months. Over the last two or three months, what we've done is, especially as we've scaled, we've said, okay, that, that was sort of our, our diverging phase, and now we needed to converge. Uh, and we need to converge on a, a single unified view of what that process is so that everyone can sort of follow it and it can be consistent. Um, but rather than me writing all that down and sort of handing it down to the team, what we did is we actually brought together um, uh, a lot of people across the different teams that have lived this over the last few months. And what we were trying to do is trying to pull out what worked and try to pull out best practices. So it was a, it was a, um, a group of, I think it was maybe like five or eight people um, that we brought together that were responsible for bringing some of the best practices that they had discovered in their own teams to this central group. And they, they over the course of several workshops and meetings, pulled together a single unified process that um, uh, married together all these lessons learned. Uh, and that actually over the last few weeks, we've started to share that with the rest of the organization. So um, it was it was a much more organic way to to kind of develop a unified process. And, you know, uh, myself and my counterpart on the engineering team um, and the head of our department, we would stay close to it to kind of make sure that it's still aligned with our vision for how we should work. Um, and, and honestly, there, there really wasn't a whole lot of like redirecting or steering that we had to do. It was pretty awesome to see all of this come together and really articulate what we had in mind, but do it in a way that really matched how the teams like to work. Um, so by doing it in this kind of inclusive, collaborative way, uh, what we're seeing is that the process just sticks so much better because it was, it was kind of formed in, in much more of a bottoms up way. We were able to, you know, as we roll this out, we're able to point to stories of ways that teams have been working and how it's worked over the last few months. Um, and you know we're we're still right in the middle of this uh, kind of evolution, but that was maybe a very different approach that we took to change management and rolling out new process than even what I've done in the past. And I've I've seen that work very successfully. Certainly slow. Um, it, it takes a lot slower. It, it seems it, like the trade off is the time you get higher adoption, and they feel it's like a Jedi mind trick. They feel like they're the ones doing the process change, but it takes longer. Right. That I mean, that's really the biggest benefit is yeah. is uh, the team feels like they own it. Um, but you know, this has happened over the course of, uh, of a few months, whereas ideally I think it's a product leader, what sure. you'd like is you, you could say, Oh, I can, I can sure. sit down in an evening, write all this out and yeah. send it out in an email. That's faster. It just doesn't work that way. Now the reality, yeah, change management takes longer and, um, yeah. And you know, and you mentioned one thing, which I think is a good tip I've seen other people do is like, if one team is trying some of the new techniques or processes and they have a success using that to share with everybody else as like a hold it up on a pedal so say see they tried it and look and look what happened there so so the uh, the idea of of what we're doing now is the same thing that we do with product so once we can converge and have kind
kind of this unified perspective of our process. As the teams learn, we have a thing that we can feed those learnings back into. Because what was happening before is everyone was sort of diverging and converging on their own. But we weren't able to efficiently just redistribute those learnings back into the organization. And as we get bigger, that becomes more and more critical. As we work with people who really have to work across teams, not just leadership, but other functions, that becomes more critical. So converging down to a single unified, it's effectively a process hypothesis, um, has been super helpful. And now we have a place, a central place that we can feed the new learnings back into. That sounds awesome, yeah. And you mentioned Marty Kagan. I'm a big fan of Marty's work. Um, his book, Inspired, is great. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have already read it. For those of you who haven't, I would definitely recommend checking it out. And he also writes great blog posts at svpg.com for Silicon Valley Product Group. And earlier you mentioned how you know there may be new best practices or new processes, but at the end of the day, it's just a, kind of a customer-centric approach. He gave a really interesting talk in January at Lean Product Meetup on Beyond Lean and Agile, where he kind of abstracted out. It's like, hey, whether you call it Lean or Agile or Design Thinking or Lean Startup, there's a common pattern. So it's a really interesting talk I recommend people check out. So great, Chris. Well, what advice do you have for other product leaders? Uh, other product leaders mm -hmm. or other people looking to get into? Both. We can start out with product leaders and then the ones that want to get into it. Um, well, so I think maybe some of my advice for, for other product leaders is... Um, uh, to really think about your role in the three buckets that I had um, mentioned before, product, process, and people. Uh, so on the, on the people side, I really think as a product leader, one of your biggest levers for creating great product is focusing on the people. Uh, I, I think about leadership is really about creating the environment that produces good products. So that's one of the toughest parts about, I think, stepping into leadership is you sort of have to abstract yourself from the from the end output you're no longer able to make direct decisions about the product your your product is actually the environment right and so your environment is who are the people and the culture of those people and how they work how they make decisions and their skills and then the process that they follow so those are some of your biggest levers um, to create great product so in that third category with product you know what i what i try to encourage other people to do is not get so far in the weeds and really like your levers when it comes to product are really about the strategy so if you can sort of push your, um, like where you spend your time and where you make your decisions into those categories, uh, I think that's uh, how you can sort of grow as a product leader. Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of product managers, you know, as they grow in their career, when early in your career, you're like 100% individual contributor. And then eventually you become like a manager, a leader, and it can be a tough transition for people. So um, what advice do you have for PMs that, that want to, you know, eventually become product leaders? So for so on on my team again because you know I try to focus a lot of my time on people. Um, we we talk a lot about uh, growing your career as a product manager, and uh, there's there's a couple things that like uh, macro ideas that I think are important to think about as a product manager if you're looking to get into um, a product leadership role. One of them is around uh, your leadership skills and how you work with people and uh, developing this ability to uh, like not only not only be uh, genuinely concerned with the success of people and how do you, how can you actually help that person be successful and enable them to make more successful decisions uh, but also allowing yourself to step back like sort of removing yourself from the actual product decisions and focusing on the people instead so these are all i think like really important man management and leadership skills that are important uh, for a product leader and as an individual contributor as a product manager 
uh, I think it's one of the roles in product development where you're really exposed to a lot of um, important leadership skills early on. So that's awesome. But you know, further defining those uh, or, or further sharpening those, I think, is important. The the other area that I think um, product managers have to push themselves in is um, kind of elevating their thinking and operating at a higher altitude. So uh, can you move yourself from the tactical to the more strategic? Uh, is your whole day consumed with uh, backlog prioritization and, and sprints and cards? Um, or can you start to think at a higher level? Can I start to think about um, outcomes of the product and, and maybe outcomes of the business? And can I think about a strategy that moves us from point A to point B? And how far out is that is that point B? Um, you know, earlier in your career, you, you sort of have the skills to be able to move to a point B that might be uh, a month away. And, and that's kind of within your grasp. And, you know, as you move into a more strategic role, you have to, your horizon needs to get a little bit bigger, right? You need to be able to figure out um, what point B is uh, a year from now, or maybe a few years from now. And how do you create a strategy that gets you from point A to point B in that scenario? Oh, that's awesome advice. Well, Chris, thanks a lot. It's been great talking with you. I think you shared a lot of words of wisdom that our audience is going to like a lot. So thanks a lot for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Thanks to our guest for joining. If you enjoyed this episode of Product Decoded, please take a minute to share it with your colleagues and leave a review on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Spiro Ventures and Product Leader Summit. Learn more at spiro.vc and productleadersummit.com. Thanks for listening to Product Decoded, and we'll see you next time.